You're listening to Builderpedia, your go-to podcast for everything you need to know about property. By covering the entire journey from buying your home through to design, building, selling and everything in between. We'll help you fill in the blanks and bring your property vision to life. Welcome to Builderpedia. I'm completely beside myself with excitement because today I have good mate and semi-famous personality in the world of marketing and development, Andy Hoyne, founder and principal of Hoyne, uh, a property branding and marketing agency. So Andy, thanks so much for coming. Very happy to have you. Oh, great. Look forward to a chat. It's um, always good just to kind of put ideas out into the world and see what sticks. Andy, give us a bit of an introduction and just tell us a bit about Andy and Hoyne. Sure. So I started the business in 1991, so 32 years ago, uh, as a graphic design business. So doing all sorts of design projects for a pretty broad range of clients. I did a few things that got a bit of recognition, like Triple J drum logo and Pure Blonde beer and a number of big retail chains. But I decided that I was really interested in property and places and experiences. And so probably 20 years ago, I started to really focus more around designing branding initially and then marketing for places and property. And then that evolved. And, um, you know, over the last 10 years, we've probably been pretty well known Australia-wide and possibly even globally uh, for placemaking or place visioning as we call it. And that's probably very much come about through the publishing of our book series, The Place Economy, where we kind of share our views on the world of how to create destination and how to engage the community and how to actually mitigate risk. So, yeah, it's been 32 years of an evolving career. Uh, we've got offices in Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. We do work all over New Zealand and Asia and we do speak to people on an almost weekly basis in different parts of the world. So we're lucky enough to get an interesting perspective on what's happening out there in the world of places and property. I didn't know you did the Triple J drum logo. That's something that everyone knows is old enough, I guess. I guess younger people, maybe not so much. But uh, that that's pretty cool. I mean, there's a connection back in time. Oh, it's funny. I go to gigs a lot. Um, my wife and I see lots of live music. And it's quite common that we'll be an event and, you know, Triple J will be one of the sort of media sponsors and, you know, to this day, I, I still see the logo everywhere and, it, and, you know, I see people drinking pure blonde beer or, you know, things that I might have done decades ago. It's nice that they're still alive and hopefully they're still relevant because, you know, things change, people change, expectations change and trends most definitely change. Yeah, but some things are just enduring, aren't they? Like the, it, there's trends and then there's just enduring things like bloody Birkenstocks or something it's just <laughs> they, they just never die they're not always cool or maybe they're cool in different groups of people but they're just so enduring and they haven't they really haven't changed like you know there's things that just endure I think the best example of that is places the, the places people love that they endure intergenerationally and um, over decades and, and they might morph and evolve but sometimes the kind of core DNA never changes. Absolutely. And I'll just tell you a little a little story that great design is it just is enduring. That that's what I've found. That's the difference. Really, if you can break it apart and 
do whatever, have whatever. Some people love it, some people hate it, but that's what I've found is the definition of, of great design, great planning or whatever it is. It's, it's actually, it tends to endure and we don't know exactly why sometimes. I think it's that emotional connection. I think one solution will not always connect with everyone, but it's not supposed to because we are all so different as people. We have different views of the world. You know, we have our own lens. And so I think the goal is to understand who your audience is and then to find a way to connect with them. And part of that connection can be visual, it's experiential, it's emotional. And I think when you get that right, uh, you tend to have something which becomes more enduring and will last the test of time. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that emotion is what sells product really. And and I don't think it, whether it's a beer or Birkenstocks or, or a house, it's that emotional attachment. And that's something we'll get onto, but I, I do want to, you've got books that you have been handing out to people and I'm intrigued to know what they are. <laughs> And whether I've read them and uh, whether I know them. And I'm so I'm, I can't go any further because I'm too curious about that, particularly. So, so tell us both of them. I'm really into books. I, I just, um, I, I think I told somebody this only recently. It might have even been my wife. I'm not sure. But I said that the first time I think I probably read a book, a, a decent sized book, cover to cover, I was 21 years old. So somehow I got through my entire childhood without reading a sizable book. Even during high school, I'm not sure how I did it. I just wasn't interested. But as soon as I did, it became something that's been a core part of my life ever since. And I'm a voracious reader, book collector. I love, you know, creating and publishing books and sharing them with people. But I also love discovering books that I think are special, that I think everyone needs to read. And I've, over the years, in dozens of times, found a book that I think fits that criteria for me and then I'll go back and I might buy 20 copies or 50 copies. In some cases, I've probably bought two or 300 copies. Wow. And I just give it to people. And it might be random or it might be, I really think you need this book in your life. You know, it's inconsistent in terms of how I distribute a new book that I've found. But a good example um, some years ago was a book by a woman named Anne Karpf. And it's called How to Age, and it's published by the School of Life. And what's great about this book is that it changes the way you think about aging. And as a society, we do have this deep-seated fear of aging. And we look down, and we might not admit it, but we look down on older people, you know, frail, not as strong or as competent as they once were. And this book is great because it actually talks about understanding you know, this inevitable part of the human condition. And it, look, it looks at the stages of your life as being really fruitful and at how you can actually think about the way you evolve as a person and the way that you relate to other people. And from my point of view, I think it's also about understanding the idea of having respect and not because we're told as youngsters that we have to have respect for older people, but actually having some appreciation for the years they've lived and the experiences that they've had and the things that we can all learn. You don't have to be famous or anything to teach other people something. I think wisdom comes in all forms. And this book is a really great book and it's not super thick. It's, it's one of those books you could probably read in a day or two. But for me, I think it 
it's had a big impact on a lot of people I've shared it with because it's changed their notion of the idea of ageing. And then the other book that I've given out a lot is a book called Grit by an author, Angela Duckworth. And um, you'll probably find her also on one of the fantastic Freakonomics um, podcast series. She's a really smart lady. And the book is all about why passion and resilience are actually the secrets of success. And so I particularly like giving this to young people about them trying to figure out who they are and what it is they want to do and being concerned that they don't have the experience or the skills. But this book is about saying if you actually persevere, if you throw yourself at something and you make a true and meaningful effort, that you will get there. And you will probably get a lot further than someone who has true talent. I just want to share the first time I heard of you was on a podcast, which was the Property Podcast. But the reason I remember that distinctly is I was on a property development journey and I just remember feeling like an outlier, feeling like I'm the only one who's thinking a particular way about property. And then listening to you, I'm like, there's at least one other person who thinks about property the way I think about property, where fundamentally the the, the spreadsheet is secondary. Like, of course, you need budgets and you need the numbers to stack up, but fundamentally the first thing you need is to create something great that yeah. people are emotionally attached to and love. And I know, like, from my experience, like, that's the magic of, well, I guess it's the magic of any product but the product i know is is property so when you have people who just love something that you've created and they just want to live in it and ironically that's when you get the return on investment because you have a few people who with them I, I guess if you've done your job right who have the means who love it and just need want to live in there and then you they go into a battle about who's actually prepared to pay the most to live in there. And, and I'm talking about single residences, you know, like of course. that's my yeah. specialty. That's what I know. And so place visioning is something that I understand, I think, inherently, partly because of where, where I bought property, where I've developed property. But I couldn't understand why it applies to large developments. And you've done some amazing work amazing branding and I was wondering why you think it doesn't apply just to single residences and and why to large projects so I'll explain place visioning for me in the way that we've kind of constructed it it's a functional process to guide the development the property development of a site and most of the work that we do is probably of, of a larger scale but the point of it is to mitigate risk by undertaking a process that starts with a very clear end in mind. So sort of my start at the end and work backwards to the beginning. So it's um, it's a blueprint that guides and shapes how the place that you're working on will be developed, but always keeping the end user and also, to be you know honest, the financial outcomes in, in sight, so being very clear about what you want those to be. So it defines all the kind of stakeholders, the, the audiences, the people, and it undertakes this process of inquiry to understand the aspirations of the people that you're trying to engage, whether that is for a residential or a precinct or something more. 
And so by understanding, often it's, a, it's more than just one group of people, it's a range of groups, but what is the shared vision they all have that they want to see the outcome be? And so what you need to do is start with a very clear, simple vision that you can articulate. So a marketable narrative that people understand. And then you need to define the character. You know, what's the kind of look and feel, the visual language, the persona. And then what we do is we come up with a set of uh, what we call place recommendations. So understanding how will that impact the built form, the architecture, even though we are not architects, but we give direction to actually make an architect's job easier. And then the public domain, you know, if there are parks or public spaces around, what will occur in those spaces? And then other experiences, you know, in terms of curating the retail, or the food and beverage or the other businesses that might be in a larger scale development. So through the process, what we do is we identify the anchors. And so th this idea of these anchors or magnets can be the amenity or the public realm, the retail. And these are the things that attract investors, tenants, buyers, uh, residents and visitors. So it's a blueprint that documents the process and it represents the core principles of development. And it's used to brief and guide all the consultants, the uh, planner or the architect, the landscape architect, the interior designer. So it's used to inform, educate and actually engage everyone through that process. And, you know, through that, you have the ability to kind of uh, realise real true value, so economic uplift, price uplift, and support decision-making, you know, so everyone is really clear and unified through that process. And in doing that, what happens is you mitigate risk because you have a very clear people-first framework that clearly takes an approach that you understand who the audience is and you're creating something for that audience. And so there's nothing vanilla or generic about it. It yeah. means that you're not trying to be all things to all people, that the audience clearly says, wow, this is something different, compelling, and it feels like it's been made for me. Now, I do tend to kind of think about this process in the context of much larger projects, like massive developments or mixed-use precincts or neighbourhoods or suburbs or even towns. But the thinking can be applied to small scale and it can be applied to, you know, a small residential development when you actually are really clear about what it is that you want to create that's not like other products in the market because you have a clear, you can literally paint a picture of who your audience is. It's not about going, I'll build it and then someone will turn up. It's about having a really clear picture of this is the family, this is how many kids they have, this is the sort of things they're into. This is the culture they like. You know, it's about being really clear about who and what that is so you can actually understand what their needs are likely to be and actually meet them ahead of time Yeah, and know how that family will evolve as they live in a place. For me, this totally resonates and it's kind of the same process, the same, of course, different process because you're not selling 50 apartments you're not bringing in tenants you're not you're not bringing in like you know retail tenants and and other things but the broad principle is the same i think because okay so two things one is if we ever have a new client as an architectural design firm 
the first thing we say is why are you doing this and what is the purpose? What is the goal? Because what doesn't work is to start with, well, I want a bigger kitchen and I want, and, you know, you, you go down a series of little rabbit holes that kind of aren't necessarily linked to each other. So we always kind of step back and go, why, why are we here and what is it that you really need? Like what is the problem? What are your core objectives? So I kind of don't think that changes whether you have a commercial developer or someone or a couple who are looking to do a small renovation. The, the, that, the broader principle of having that overall vision and understanding purpose, like that, that is the same. And I guess the other thing is when I've focused on when I've developed property or help people develop property, it's about creating something that is a, a product, not something that's spreadsheet kind of related square meters with features. We're focused on how that place feels in the sense of how does someone feel when they first walk in and what is it they see. And I guess one of the fundamentals of design is that they don't need a map to find their way around. They are drawn in, and I think you'll agree that it shouldn't matter if it's a football stadium or an airport. And I think, you know, and funny enough, airport's one of those funny things where I, I can't tell whether I'm biased and just more familiar, but you kind of know where you are and where you're going in Sydney airport. When you land in Melbourne, you don't know where you are and how you're going to get to the next place. And it is, it's, it's good design. It just leads you to the right place, right? And it's the same in the smallest development as it is in the most massive development. You want to be led. You want to feel like you know where you are and where you're heading, even when you've never been there before. And one, yeah. of, one of my clients who's in product design said it's because the person doesn't feels good when they feel smart, when they feel like they know it, they feel good. And there's a feedback loop. And I've been to, to you know, so many places where I've advised clients on purchases or or I've been on inspections for myself and you're in a very, very high spec property and the ask it's been kitted out, you know, it's it's got all the features, but you're in the middle of it somewhere and you're kind of going to yourself, where the fuck am I and how do I get out of here? You're just lost in a series of steps and corridors and like you just you you don't know what to do next and you hope that there's not a fire because you don't know where to go so i guess that's what i was curious because i'm yeah those two things i think there's different levers to pull like in a large-scale project you have the ability to think about the public spaces the parks a bigger uh, list of potential amenity and experiences the rooftop the gardens the wine cellar the you know all sorts of things in a single or a private residence. It's interesting because even apartment buildings that I've worked on, I've gone, well, okay, in this, we're in Chinatown. So everyone who lives here is going to be Asian. Where are people going to put their shoes? Because people don't wear shoes inside. And then I go in and I'm looking at the plans going, why is everything electric? I know that from a sustainability and environment point of view, that's the, the way that we're all trying to go. But let me tell you, if you don't put gas in, they're just going to rip it out and then put a new, st- put an oven in. 
or they're not going to buy it at all because if they can't stick a wok on there, that's, that's how they live. That's how they cook. You can't tell them they're not allowed to have one because it's, it's not going to work that way or they just won't be buyers in the middle of a, a location like a Chinatown that's culturally clear about who the audience is going to be. So meet their needs, whether they're belief-based or religious-based, whether they are, you know, determined by family activities, things that they're involved in, uh, maybe it's the ages of children, knowing that kids grow up quick, so being conscious that things have to evolve in, in a family environment. But I think it's more exciting to create something that has a clear purpose in mind from the beginning rather than just a generic home, assuming that you're you know, doing it at the right price point in the right location because you know, certain locations attract certain types of people. You know, the tribes, tribes know where they want to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm adamant that we're at different scales doing similar things, having similar thought processes. And that was apparent to me from the time that I was listening to that podcast with Justin. And I'm like, this guy actually, this is the first, Andy's the first guy who understands me. <laughs> Everyone else is where just you know spreadsheet 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 and i'm like spreadsheet's good but what what are we really doing like what is the product i like to um remind people who are development managers that i appreciate that their job is often driven by time and cost that they need to get it done quickly otherwise it's going to cost more and that ultimately they need to drive the profit margins otherwise they're not in business and, you know, certainly we've been seeing a lot in the current climate where a lot of people are going out of business because the margins don't exist. And so my view is simply that while I don't claim that any of that is untrue, if they think more like an entrepreneur with their spreadsheet, if they think more progressively about the audience and the users and the market, they'll actually, with the same amount of effort, with a little bit more thought, end up with a more compelling product that people will line up to pay a premium for, therefore increasing their margins and mitigating their risk, the biggest risk they have, which is money. But it's just about being conscious that everywhere you go, and if we just use Sydney as an example, Sydney likes to think of itself as a city of villages. And I think in many ways it is, and it's a great thing. You know, there are different ethnicities uh, as I said before, tribes that live in different parts of the city. And it's really about understanding the sort of idiosyncrasies and nuances of people and families and figuring out what can you do specifically in that area to improve their experience, to actually make them feel like they really won the jackpot in terms of the place they've chosen to live. We're seeing a lot of... Um, Greenfields development, you know, places like Marsden Park or out in the Southwest Growth Corridor. And, you know, we're talking about thousands of new houses. And some of them, to me, I find very depressing. There's no public space, parks. There's not even any tall trees, just houses. And I'm not against greenfield development at all. In fact, we work on lots of really exciting greenfield developments. But I think you need to think about the experiences first and the houses second. Because if a family turns up with small children, you know, you want to know that they've got a fun place to play or things to do or a place to meet their friends. 
um, that in an area that is generally hotter than, say, the eastern suburbs, that there's tree canopy and cover, that they've actually planted, you know, um, mature trees, that there's actually um, shade cloth over the playgrounds and the kids aren't going to burn their bums yeah. on, the, on the metal slide uh, unless they go before 9am or after 5pm, which is, you know, not ideal for kids in the first place. So I just think it's about being more thoughtful and I think that we can be no, more thoughtful everywhere we live and work, in our suburbs, in our streets, in our neighbourhoods. And most of it comes down to understanding in, if we're living in existing houses and we're not developing something, it's about how do we connect with our neighbourhood? How do we create relationships? Because relationships are the bedrock of all facets of what a good life looks like. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, and I guess I have been thinking about my own street. That's something that I was going to ask you. My street is in Roselle, in the valley in Roselle, not in not in the top of the hill, but we're we're in sort of near the power station and next to the biggest one of the biggest construction sites in Australia's history, I think, being the West Connects, and and now next to a, a giant hole in the ground that's the new metro. And I wish I could say I was very strategic in buying a property here, but it was just dumb luck. But I found that when I, I walk up and down my street, my office is 10 minutes walk away, five minutes if I'm late. But I, my street is really a very inefficient parking space. It's a very, very badly designed and inefficient car park, essentially. And not only that, but you can hardly walk along the footpath because at some point, the gap between the tree and the building, and, and this is in sort of inner, inner west, in Roselle, the gap between the house and the tree in, in the street tree, which is in the middle of the footpath, you got to kind of shuffle through. And, you know, my, my son doesn't like spiders, so he doesn't like going through the sort of like the shrubbery at the base of the tree. And you kind of go, I feel like there's a better solution. And I see neighbours and they, a lot of neighbours walk, you know, they sort of walk down the middle of the street. Yeah. But that doesn't always work and it's not pleasant to walk in the middle of the street, particularly with your kids and your dog and, and sort of always looking over your shoulder. And one of the things that makes it an inefficient car parking space is this, is the width of the road. It's sort of just enough for two cars to squeeze past but maybe it depends on the if they're two big cars, they probably can't fit. But there's this, if yeah, so so I'm kind of going, how do I make this street a one way street and take back some of the land that's this incredibly inefficient car park and put some trees in the street? And you kind of go, obviously, like, well, not obvious, I won't say obviously because people have different ideas, people have different needs, and people are sometimes militant about car parking spots um as you know so you kind of go if we fix this street it adds value to everybody and makes this such a more pleasant space but how do you start i mean you know inner west council will say they don't have any budget i don't think you never rely on a council to do those sorts of things those initiatives are got to be locally driven and in many ways probably even locally funded to be honest 
I mean, the difficult thing in inner urban neighbourhoods that have their in heritage areas like Roselle, so lots of cottages, terraces, you know, they're small blocks and there's a lot trying to getting packed into them. They're super characterful. They're beautiful places to live. People tend to have really strong connections with their neighbours and their street. So that's one of the great reasons we all like living in those spaces. The downside is space. Starts with car parking space. So if you've got a back lane and people have car access to the rear of their house, great. You've got most of an answer right there in terms of how people can sort of think differently about utilisation of their space and where they put their car. Um, but if they don't, then you're already in trouble because you're right, people are militant about their, their car parking spaces and nobody wants to lose them. They're precious in every major city around the world. But let's just say for the sake of conversation, there was a back lane and there was the ability to park there or in you know backyard. The thing is, if you've got kids, you want a backyard for a place that your kids can play. Or maybe you've got a fancy car and you actually prefer it better protected uh, in, your, in your backyard or a carport. And the idea of actually changing a street to one way can make great sense, you know, if, uh, you know, you've got good uh, traffic advice in terms of the effect that that has on access. The idea that you can actually turn one side of a street into, you know, a, a widening a footpath or creating a more green space um, is really exciting. But again, nothing happens in isolation and everything has to be a conversation with everybody in the street which is a hard thing to do, to bring people together. And it usually takes a period of time. I know where I live, we know our neighbours 10 doors in each direction and across the road and out the back. But because we decorate our house till kingdom come for Christmas, Easter, Anzac Day, Gay Pride, you name it. It's like the most colourful house in the street and there's always events on at our house and we have dinner parties where we invite all the neighbours. We have barbecues where we invite the whole street. We're able to have a conversation with people in the street who might traditionally have a differing opinion to us. But because we've created some rapport, we're able to have a friendly dialogue about it. And I think that's what it takes, is you've got to actually create rapport with the people in your street, with your neighbours, and start a dialogue, knowing that half the people won't agree with you and just listening to what they have to say. And through a process, you might potentially find that you get somewhere where the majority of people agree with one point of view, and then you can look to figure out what you can do about that. But I certainly would never rely on council for those sort of initiatives. Um, they just don't have the, the budget or the man hours or the inclination, you know. I mean, it's just not a core part of what it is they do as an entity. Uh, I think we as residents need to kind of take control of our streets. Yeah. Um, I tried to convince all of my neighbours about a year ago to paint a bird mural on the back fence of their um, their car or their, their back fence because we did one of it on the back of ours and people just loved it and kept coming and taking photos. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if all like in this laneway of, say, 20 houses if there was a different bird painted on the back fence of every single house and then our back laneway became famous for bird murals, what it would mean is that the back lane became safer, that my kids could actually scoot around the back lane because it became more a pedestrian-orientated lane instead of a place where cars take a shortcut. So you've got to change 
the environment and change the experience to change your expectation around the way people behave. And so instead of empty beer bottles or maybe even syringes in my laneway, if I actually make it more beautiful through murals or maybe some greening and some planting, then people start to respect it more. It starts to become a place where people use on a more um, daily basis. And then it's less inclined to be a space that's used for, you know, more nefarious activities. And do you have any, I mean, that's kind of, I guess, painting the back of your, the laneway, like that's, I mean, you probably didn't, no one cared, No, everyone loved it, no one cared. You didn't get council approval, you just did it. Oh, God, no. They don't, don't ask council for approval unless you're doing a major renovation. Yeah. Because so the answer from council will always be no yeah, to so everything, every time. So just ignore council. Okay. And so how far can you, I'm, I'm wondering my sort of, because one of the things I've got great memories of is, is I think there was a show called Gorilla Gardeners where they just went in and landscape random places, including the famous troll under the bridge in Annandale. And how far can you stretch that, do you reckon? What if I, I've got... I think if you're, put it this way, if you're creating something that adds true community benefit, you're not asking them to fund it or approve it, you're just doing it yourself. Yeah, it might not be within their sort of uh, more traditional rules, but if people value it and it's actually adding a good outcome, I, I would personally, I mean, you know, I know it's against the rules, but I would do it anyway, personally. I think as long as you've got agreement with the vast, ideally all of your neighbours, but certainly the vast majority, and, you know, once you've done it, whatever it is that you've done, people can see the immediate benefits, the immediate change of the uh, experience that particularly children or, and, you know, even like imagine just putting a park bench somewhere, you know, where someone older can sit down and just have a sort of rest, you know, in, in a shaded environment. I mean, things like that. They start because ideally what we want to do is bring people out of their houses because the biggest issue we face as a society is loneliness. And if we think about the streets that we live in and we started to think about every individual house, how many houses have got, say, a 75-year-old widow living in it with no kids? Now, that person has the potential to be very lonely if they don't have friends or family nearby. So the best thing we can do is actually bring them out and engage with them. You know, I mean, I'm picking on a particular age and gender. We're not picking on them. I'm more sort of identifying an example that we would love to see engage more with our community. But it actually exists in every age, whether it's a 25-year-old working in tech or or a 35-year-old divorcee. It doesn't matter. It's just about helping people connect with their neighbours and feel like they're part of something, to feel like, they're within a network that people nearby will not just lend them or, you know, give them a bowl of sugar, but actually lend them an ear and become someone they can chat with. And I think that's what a real community is, is that idea of knowing you can reach out to someone who will listen. And what if I put one-way signs up on my street? (laughs) I think that's probably taking it the next step. Um, I mean, yeah. council, you know, like I deal, we deal with them a lot. I think it might, it'll take a long time for them to know. I think when you're talking about a rule at that level, <laughs> if you've got the support of your neighbours and you've got something, you know, like a traffic report, you know, you can lobby them to actually change it officially. 
yeah. I think when you've got a really good argument, you can you can force the point. Yeah, you just got to agree which way it's going to be, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the traffic engineer or the traffic sort of expert should be the person that gives you that advice. Yeah. So it's never about your opinion or your neighbour's opinion. It's about, you know, whoever happens to be the expert on that particular field. And in this case, we're talking traffic. So they do take that pretty seriously. Yeah, traffic's a funny one. I remember um, when a very long time ago I I lived at um, Forest Lodge and I just... I found this spot where I, I won't go into detail, but where where I saw kids crossing and running out because you couldn't. It was sort of behind a barrier. It was a bit of a bend. There weren't any other. There weren't any cars parked around, or like it was just a bit of a funny place. And I and I kind of I wrote to council, pointing out the risk and kind of going, "This is a problem." I can see one of these kids getting wiped out one day because they're, they're yeah. running out. They're sort of like, you know, they're sticking their head out and then it just was a bad place. And I, I in, in my very naive state, I thought, well, maybe there should be a pedestrian crossing. There should be a, a there should be something or a traffic island or they should change something. And I say in my naive state because, of course, what they did is came out and barricaded the <laughs> that thoroughfare. Right. So, so now not only did kids have to stick their head out, but they had to jump over a fence before they, <laughs> a short, like they, they just put one of those traffic barriers in the way to prevent people yeah. walking out. So I was like, why? That just added risk because kids now climbed like that that, it was obviously a thoroughfare for you know yeah i think it's about like having a bit of common sense you know in that case actually i think i'm surprised to hear that they actually did something they might not have done the thing that you were hoping they do but they actually did something Um, i've had instances similar instances where they just done nothing repeatedly and you know really worries me the sort of uh safety issues we have and i think um speed humps and pedestrian crossings are incredibly important just if not for anything just to slow traffic down you know i just think we could we could certainly have a lot slower traffic in urban areas uh, than we have to put up with at the moment unless you've got any ideas i'm going to look into ways to slow traffic down in my street i don't know well speed humps are the simplest and cheapest that, that, you can just build your own just Build it, bitumen over it, and just there you go. The other thing is, um, and paint on the road. You know, getting that sort of high vis paint and just making it look official through a stencil and writing "slow down" or something like that on the road. There you go. That that that's the sort of thing that I definitely advocate people taking into their own hands. I'm gonna, you know, what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna bolt some of those plastic industrial type speed humps to the road yeah at the front of my house and um yeah, just drill them onto the just drill just just i don't know drill them in glue them in i don't know yeah I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna take over because i it's funny i live on a kink our house is on a kink in the street so there's a spot where you can't exactly park a car properly and you can't really do anything and i and i've got to feel like it feels a lot of the time like if car spaces were rationalized more cars would fit and it'd be easier. Yeah. There'd be space left over as well because at the moment you get, it's just a free-for-all and sometimes there's half spots everywhere. 
another no, motorbike to, to get to get in. So you just want to push cars over. I mean, one day they'll just drive themselves and adjust to you know they'll just back when they're smart enough. But it seems I was promised a self-driving car by now, and it, and it hasn't happened. But um, no, nah, I'd be I'd be putting lines. I'd be dividing up the spots. <laughs> You've been putting your own lines. Yeah, absolutely, no question. Oh yeah, okay. That's I, I've gotten out there before, and you know, at one a.m. with the paint, yeah, and the sort of and the full white, you know, high vis overalls <laughs> to make myself look official and to make sure I don't get run over. Yeah, oh, I like absolutely. It. Yeah, lines. All right, so I've got a I've got a um, shopping list here. Got plastic. <laughs> I got some, I got some paint. I got to work out how to get the. You got to you got to cut a mask out of cardboard. Yeah, or plastic. yeah, right. Spray over the mask. There you go. This is great info. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did mention that gorilla TV show from way back when. I thought that was great, by the way. I loved it. I loved it too. And I live just near one of those installations they did on South Dowling and Cleveland Street. The, it's still there to this day. The V dub that's yeah, that's the V dub cut in half. Cut in half with plants growing in it. I mean, that's that's a part of local history now. Like that. Yeah. That's, that's heritage listed. I'm sure. <laughs> that's on the register of yeah it's definitely part of the local everyone knows it everyone knows what yeah. it is everyone like you do you drive past it a, a lot if you live in that area but um and when are we do you think councils are ever going to put and again we I've, I've seen this around there's lots of diy car charging happening do you think councils will ever put car charging in streets or is that something that's going to be private companies coming in lobbying council um look it's hard to say i think that you you know if, if we look at the usa uh where it's more prevalent particularly in the eastern uh, west coast that seems to all be privately owned you know i'm not seeing a lot of public infrastructure in that regard so i'm, I'm not sure i think it's either the case that there's an assumption that private houses will have it or uh, local businesses will have it, you know, available. But I, I'm not convinced that we'll see much of it in public. I have seen a bit of it through Australia, particularly in regional towns. Like if you go to a just one example is, say, Goulburn, you know, that stretch of those roads from Sydney to Melbourne, there are a number of uh, stations that look like they're in public spaces, highly visible in some of those uh, towns down that freeway and i always you know i always forget that where maybe you and i live in a bit of a unique part of sydney where it is smaller houses well some smaller houses some bigger houses but yeah we i mean there's no our house will never have any sort of a car parking or even a half car parking option you know we got where, where a garage would be is the room i'm in now <laughs> It just isn't that. But I guess, but I guess you have to remember most of Sydney is not like that. A lot of Sydney is is very much houses with with either a, some sort of a driveway or or a carport or or a garage. So I guess we're talking about a very small a small subset of Sydney, and um, and like you were alluding to before, like a lot of Sydney relies on cars and. It's a giant sprawl. The future success of this city will be entirely determined by, by the implementation of public transport. I mean, more rail, more light rail. That will be a determinant of how great a city 
Sydney can become. Yeah. Because it's about providing more access to jobs, education, opportunity. And if we can't do that, if we can't provide that amenity and that infrastructure, then Sydney will never realise its full potential. But also there's no point building that infrastructure and those apartments if people aren't ever going to want to live in them. So there's this conundrum in Sydney because we want to have that high, because what what you said is more public transport, that relies on higher densities, right? Yeah. You can't have one without the other, really, because it's not viable to send a train line through sparsely populated suburbs, which is most of Sydney. But densification around those nodes, wherever you go, even in the outer suburbs, um, where there might be areas that are predominantly freestanding houses, uh, you can certainly put higher rise and apartments around those nodes to densify each of those transport stops. But how do you convince people to live in them? Because that's the, you know, like we, you and I... You deliver amenity on the ground. It's not just about access to public transport, but you want to have grocery retail, food and beverage, entertainment, activities, you know, and green space, all centrally located around those public transport nodes with um, elevated, you know, apartment living above. That's the way that we actually make these things viable. So I had this thought experiment once and it and it's, it's, may never happen, but say you were looking at a greenfield development. What if you said to the developer and again highly hypothetical and and but what if you said let's not build i don't know 200 300 whatever however many hundred homes let's build a series of eight story towers or mid-rise and leave farmland bushland i mean i kind of know what the answer is people they might want to know about it but also they'll be worried the reason they won't want to know about it is because they won't, that it'll be harder to get, I guess, fruit council because it's people foresee it as more impactful, but also they'll be worried that no one will want to live there. But I wonder if you could ever sell that. Like, I, I know it's, it feels like this impossible board experiment. Can you see yourself ever selling that? Yeah, look, I think we're going to see a lot more high rise, medium to high rise apartment developments in outer suburbs, uh, so long as they're surrounding, you know, public transport train lines, so long as they've got uh, grocery amenity, you know, active green spaces, so long as they actually tick all of those boxes, we'll see a huge growth, in my view, in the coming years. I think it's, it's on the cards right now. And, yes, while there might be this assumption that apartment living is second rate to living in a house. It's certainly not the case in an, even in an urban area where you get all the benefit of all the extra amenity. But in an, in an outer suburban area, you get views. You get more amenity within the building itself. You're literally a lift right away to get access to a whole bunch of great things that in a traditional sense you would have to get in your car for and drive 10 minutes and waste that time. So I think there are pros and cons, and I think that people's mindset is changing. And unfortunately, we've sort of um, all been brought up on a diet of negative media that tries to dissuade people from thinking about the benefits of vertical living. But the reality is that 
we have a lot more people coming from Asian countries who are completely used to that way of living and, and see the benefit and see the value in proximity to other people that mitigates that idea around loneliness and social connection. You know, yes, you can close your door and you can actually have your time to yourself, but certain people really want to feel like they're a part of something, and that's one of the many ways that you can achieve that. Can you can you ever see the next Greenfield developer? Can you ever see them being convinced, hey, let's reimagine this, let's think of a different vision where we leave that farmland and we leave those cows and we leave that forest and we leave space but we build eight-story apartment towers and maybe i don't know the old townhouse or something and we put some shops in it and we have a shuttle bus that connects to the nearest station that just runs every hour on the hour 24 hours a day or something i don't know something yeah that yes you can have all those things i wouldn't say you could include the cows i don't think the cows can stay i don't think it's it and, and the, in terms of bushland, you can retain some natural setting uh, without a doubt, but you're also going to find that there's going to have to be green spaces for sports and recreation. Yep. So you want to kind of utilise those spaces. But you can also have kind of a bit more of a kind of raw area allocated to the zone as well, without a doubt, and connect it back to that kind of surrounding green belt. Well, I want to know what, what's wrong with cows. Nothing wrong with cows, but you know, <laughs> I don't. I, you know, what with cows comes poo. Smell <laughs> of the country. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I recall. I recall. Um, it, I'm going to stuff this up completely, but big, big the 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 guy. I've always fumbled his first name, but his last name is Ingalls. Big, big is the is the architecture firm in in Denmark, and one of his developments is kind of like country it's like a vertical village it's like it's like takes its cues from an old mountain village but around it is uh, i don't know if it's cows or sheep or i've actually been to this exact development you're talking about outside of copenhagen so biak um it is called the mountain that's actually the name of the development yeah. uh, and it is like in an angle like this I think you're right. it does yeah. have green space around it there are other residential buildings and there is a train line nearby so yeah that it's an interesting example of kind of uh urban density in a very kind of outer suburban area of a major city does it work well i think it's pretty good but i also think that it needs a lot more amenity and there are not enough sort of the, the infrastructure needs i think it needs more schools and there are a number of things, number of holes needed to be filled to make that truly compelling. Yeah. And I think schools is a very, very important one. But the other thing is access to jobs. You know, I'm always very conscious about how far away do people live or how long does it take them to get to work? Because I, I really dislike the notion that people spend, you know, over an hour getting to and from work each day. Yeah. So I take it you couldn't sell it to a greenfield developer. Like because I take all your points about jobs and all the other things in a minute, but they're gonna develop this place anyway without those things. Yeah. What if we create high density with space and outlook and outlook onto the surrounding countryside rather than the sprawl? Would they ever do it? Like, would you ever? I, I think yes. 
I honestly think that that will happen. Yeah, and you're going to... But the amenity will eventually come. And you will be involved. If it's got a good vision and it's got the right people involved, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's got to be... It's got to occur for the right reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Anyway, we've got... How did we ever end up there? I don't even know. (laughs) (laughs) Just, Just idea bubble after idea bubble. But free takeaways... From today's episode, I'd, I'll let you start, Andy. What do you, what are the three takeaways from your perspective? Three takeaways from my point of view is that, you know, we need to figure out how to connect with the people in our neighbourhood or at least our street to find common ground, to see where we can work collectively to improve the quality of the experience for our families and our children and what we can actually do together to create better experiences that will last well beyond the sort of the time that we spend living in these houses. And uh, probably the second one would be that, you know, so long as we're delivering amenity and experience and access to the things that people need, I don't think that there's any reason to inhibit vertical living. I think that it can probably exist in most places where it doesn't detract from the surrounding sort of uh, beauty, but really public transport for me is critical to determining how successful a city like Sydney can become. And I'm I'm going to add to that that I totally think you haven't convinced me at all that the broader principles of uh, place visioning don't apply to a single residence. I think I feel like it's even more so it does. But anyway, we can. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I I totally think uh, thinking of your own house, your own little extension, how you're going to create a better entry into your house, what that kitchen feels like. I think it's the same. It's shrunk down in size, but the underlying principles are the same, and it's all about the experience and and how you're going to feel when you're in that space and how people are going to feel when they come to visit you and hang out there that that's the underlying key and what and what's the purpose of it so i think i think like i'm i'm even more convinced that we're doing similar things at very different scales and that and that branding is as important for a kitchen renovation as as it is for the next big sort of multi res but the other takeaway um is that, you know, I've gone from kind of going, how do I think about, do I need to approach council about um, improving it, the street to pulling out that, that, I've got this catalogue in my office where you can order signage and speed humps and um, paint and I'm going to just do some things at night and I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to borrow some overalls from Andy and, uh, and start putting some things in and, and yeah, I might, document some more maybe i won't document some of those but because that that might be evidence against me (laughs) (laughs) i'll uh, I'll definitely send them to you i'm determined to put to start putting some things in and see what because that you know i'm thinking about it now and someone sees something and goes oh that's really interesting what is that and it starts a conversation and and that that's kind of how how things can grow but um I'm really appreciative of you coming on our podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks. You've been listening to Buildopedia, 
please remember to like us and share our episode with your friends. We'd love your comments and suggestions. And we have a new website, buildopedia.au, where you can get in touch or leave a question and check out our blog.